Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Andy Lowry. He's the founder and CEO of Realware. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing is super, super innovative and and much needed. But maybe before we kind of get into what exactly Realware is and is doing, let's get to know you a little bit better and kind of start off with where you grew up. Uh, born outside of St. Louis, uh, on the Illinois side in a town, little town called Edwardsville. And, okay. and, uh, as a young um, uh, guy, uh, fourth grade, I, I moved to the Chicago area. My dad took a job up North and then I spent the rest of my childhood in, in a town or a suburb of Chicago called Naperville and graduated out of high school there. Okay. So you, you went to the university of Illinois and you you took electrical engineering, correct? Yeah, I I, I actually though started before that okay. as a uh, nuclear reactor operator in the Navy. So I was an enlisted electronics technician uh, that got specialized in that that specific uh, area or job, uh, which is uh, basically maintenance, repair, and operations of these nuclear power plants that we drive our ships and submarines with. So. Uh, very, very early stage, my first three years of, of my career was spent uh, operating, maintaining, and repairing uh, nuclear power plants in the Navy. And then the Navy were the ones that actually ended up uh, selecting me for a commissioning program called Nuclear Enlisted Commissioning, and I went to University of Illinois. It was one of the 15 or so schools that they allowed you to choose between and got my degree in the mid-90s. So right as the World Wide Web and stuff was taken off, I got to experience sort of it at, you know, ground <laughs> ground point central, if you will, or, or the uh, that whole emergence of the web. And so graduated in 97 from University of Illinois, as you state, with an electrical engineering degree um, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of good experiences at that time. Sure. So you graduate, you're still in the, the Navy, correct? Yeah. So the program puts you through school. It actually keeps you as an active Navy sailor. That's okay. why it's called enlisted commissioning while you're in school. So you still are, are active duty in school. And then after school, you go to officer candidate school, uh, which is down in Pensacola, and you get the nice treatment from the Marine Corps uh, gunnery sergeants and drill instructors. And uh, then out of that, you get commissioned uh, as an ensign in the United States Navy. So commissioned in the Navy in 1997, and I spent five more years as an officer in the Navy, uh, again, aboard uh, nuclear platforms, and now this time as a manager or supervisor of the folks that uh, maintain the power generation, the electronics, uh, the control systems, and all that, uh, based around these very large nuclear reactors that power our uh, Nimitz-class carriers, <clears throat> aircraft carriers. Wow, that that's fascinating. So you were in the Navy for just over 25 years, correct? Yeah, 11 years of that time was active. In 2002, I made a transition from active duty service to reserve service. Okay, and, what does that uh, mean for people that don't know? So 
so there's there's two ways that that you can serve in the military. Uh, the the one way is is full time, 100 percent, 365 days a year. Um, you're at active, and that's called active duty. Okay. Uh, and then there's reserve service, where you, you sometimes hear about them called like weekend warriors or whatnot, where you participate one weekend out of each month uh, as a full time guy, and then two weeks out of the year you do some sort of a duty, <clears throat> and then out of that pool of active reservists. A lot of times they will deploy uh, when we need surge capability if we get into a conflict or some sort of an issue. They'll pull out of the active reserve component and then activate those folks full time. Uh, and then when they don't need them, they get deactivated back into that one weekend a month, two weeks a, a year type of a thing. So I spent the additional 13, 14 years of um, my total amount of time in the Navy uh, in the reserve service. <clears throat> Got you. Okay. So kind of walk me through your, because you've done a bunch of stuff for a bunch of different companies. So kind of walk me through kind of when you, you're still kind of unreserved for the Navy, but you had a bunch of other kind of interesting jobs. Do you maybe want to give me a kind of quick overview of that before we kind of dive into realware? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I'm a really, you know, to, to your point, I, I, you know, just by almost happenstance, it wasn't something I, I architected or engineered as far as my career. I, I ended up getting kind of this wide breadth of, of many different technology areas and uh, uh, industries under kind of my belt. I left the Navy, like I said, active service in 2002, and so had uh, almost a decade of operating, maintaining, you know, running these big nuclear plants. So got a really good uh, industrial basis, especially in power, power generation, power distribution, and those fields. I took the knowledge that I obtained from the Navy, and I transitioned into an actual sales job, uh, working for Big Tyco when Tyco was all still put together, uh, post Kozlowski, but right after Ed Breen from Motorola came in and took over Tyco. Right. And and at Tyco, I I was part of initially, anyways, part of their fluid flow con uh, uh, department or or division business whatever. And I was selling valves, actuators, and and fluid control systems to power plants, refineries, food and beverage, paper. Uh, chemical, uh, you name it, if it had a, a fluid process, it was a customer of mine. So in that job, I got a very good sort of uh, horizontal basis across many different industry verticals from the aspect of their fluid systems. And so very much, again, in this whole maintenance, repair, operations type of a sector, but this time much broader than just power. I, I spent a few years in that position and transitioned to another division of Tyco, uh, their electronics division, and I leveraged my uh, microwave and RF uh, wave experience that I obtained uh, in college, and I took over a product line called um, Power Hybrids, which was basically big uh, RF power amplifiers for communication systems and things like that. So chips, these are basically silicon chips uh, that go into systems that help amplify the signal right before it goes out over the air. And so that in that division, I spent almost almost five years uh, at Maycom, what's called Maycom, uh, and I worked a whole variety of positions, ranging, ranging from operations and where I ran all of operations, uh, front end and back end, uh, business development for about a year and a half. And then eventually I became the general manager or the product line leader of about an $85 million per year 
uh, product line. So I had about 300 oh, wow. people, full P&L responsibility in my mid-30s. Wow. Um, that company was bought by Cobham, and in that transition, I moved uh, out of, of that division, and I joined Raytheon. And at Raytheon, I was uh, inducted or brought into their chief engineering uh, group of, of folks, which is a very small kind of select group of, of system engineers that basically run all ta- technical aspects of, of programs or, or whole, whole groups of programs. So, uh, and in that role, I was considered to be sort of the change agent of Raytheon, where they'd have a troubled or problematic program that I would come in and attempt to fix. And I did this successfully over about a five to six year period uh, in a whole different ranges of, of their business, but all in the space and airborne systems area. So I did a, a space satellite manufacturing program. That's I did cool. uh, intelligence and surveillance like Global Hawk and unmanned air vehicles and things like that. And then culminated, my final position was in charge of all of electronic warfare uh, after capturing a, a pretty cool program called Next Generation Jammer, which uh, you know consumed about three years of my life. And it was at Raytheon, that was my final non-startup, since I've been in the startup space, is where I founded uh, my first company, uh, which we originally called Augmented Dynamics, which later became renamed as a company called Daiquiri, which still exists today. Okay, so what exactly is that? So Daiquiri was an augmented reality company. And uh, Brian Mullins, the CEO, and I, uh, in 2010, Uh, decided that this idea of mobile augmented reality, meaning, uh, you know, uh, a way of interfacing with the world and digital objects contextually arranged in that world. So imagine a uh, digital ball, if you will, sitting on a desk. Mm -hmm. And as you moved away from that ball with some sort of a wearable or a tablet, and you're in video see-through, you're pulling away from it, the ball's getting smaller in context with everything else around it. So uh, this idea of augmented reality, which isn't quite virtual reality because it mixes the two worlds of of the real world and and the virtual world, uh, that idea, we thought application of that to industrial human-machine interface would be revolutionary. And so we founded Augmented Dynamics, which later become Daiquiri, uh, back in 2010-11. We ran at it for a couple years and didn't have a lot of uh, uptake, if you will, in that period of time. And so pivoted into commercial advertising, and that's about coincident with the time the name of the company became Daiquiri. And we focused on advertising and marketing. And I, at that time, kind of pulled back a little bit from the company, and then a big investor came in during that period in 2013. Um, They came after me and asked me to come back and rejoin as the president in order to take them out of the marketing area and back into the industrial area. And so uh, that was kind of the kickoff of the the re-engagement, and this time I left Raytheon and went full-time with Daiquiri for a period of about two years uh, to help architect sort of a transition of Daiquiri from uh, the commercial marketing, cons- con- more consumer-facing side, strictly into the industrial and the enterprise side. Interesting. So at what point did you decide to found RealWare, and what exactly is it? So uh, shortly, so I spent, like I said, about two years uh, at my first startup sure. um, that I really you know, sunk my teeth and learned, learned a ton, learned a lot, had a, had a great time 
uh, in my first uh, kind of endeavor and was very well supported there uh, by that team. Um, and I began to focus uh, still on augmented reality, but less so uh, my ideas began to formulate around augmented reality as kind of an arrow and a quiver of a greater set of technologies that were kind of emerging in what they call the industrial Internet of Things, or in Europe and China, they call it Industry 4.0. And so what I was finding in a lot of cases was that not only did folks, you know, want the fanciness of being able to look at things through an augmented reality lens, they also needed very pragmatic use cases, pragmatic use cases like remote expert, you know, dialing someone in from far away that could see what you're seeing and help walk you through a procedure or a task that you don't quite know how to figure out. Or just viewing a PDF document, an electronic PDF document where it has just words and writing on it. So I realized that there was this greater superset of activities that revolved around the industrial internet. And most of those activities, I would say 90% of those activities, seemed a lot more mundane than this fancy emerging augmented reality. And I thought that a more pragmatically focused approach that would deploy something that was very scalable but still wearable, because the number one thing that I did encounter again and again and again everywhere that I went was a desire to be hands-free, sure. hands-free so that you could use your hands to work with tools or to uh, uh, you know, turn a valve or operate a switch. And so 99% of industrial work is all focused in and around working with your hands. And so by having a system like an Android tablet or an iPad or a mobile phone or even a, a written procedure, a book, that you're forced to kind of use your hands to hold and read through and stuff, it, it created kind of this uh, decoupling of, of procedures and, and information conveyance with the work being performed, that you would have to go first to the procedure, read a couple steps, and then go perform, and then back and forth, back and forth. Right. And so what I saw was the opportunity to uh, evangelize and invent a mobile, smart mobile system, a smart mobile Android system, which were already heavily being deployed, with one little tweak. The one tweak is, in order to operate it, it requires no use of hands whatsoever. It's a completely voice-driven system Interesting. that can use existing Android applications, industrial applications, and whatnot, just as they are, but takes swipe, gesture, pinch, and converts it to a voice-driven system, and then mounts this wearable computer on a user's head or hard helmet or other personal protective equipment like bump cap and such. So it integrates in with their existing uniform, if you will, the existing thing that they're going to work with uh, every single day and allows them to get access to the same really compelling data and information and everything else that this kind of revolution of industrial mobile is starting to kind of emerge with, but on a device that allows you to maintain completely hands-free control of it. Sure. So... We kind of talked a bit about it before we, we were recording. I'm, I'm curious though, so you have, it's stock Android and you're using all the, or a bunch of the accessibility features built into Android. Am I saying that correctly? 
Yeah, uh, Android is a, it's a very, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit, like you said, and, and we were complimenting what a, what a good architecture Android is for uh, developers. It has a lot of things that a lot of people may not even be aware of. So Android 6.0 has what they call an API, an application programming interface, which is called their accessibility fr framework. And so what the accessibility framework does is it allows uh, handicap or uh, uh, blind or, or you know, maybe people without use of their hands, uh, an opportunity to control Android devices uh, via that interface. So uh, like if you want to add in voice, if you want to add in even other gestures, like I've, I've heard about folks with uh, Lou Gehrig's and uh, other uh, muscular uh, degenerative type diseases not even be able to speak. So for a click or, you know, things like that. So that's what that accessibility framework is purposed for originally. What we've done is we've kept Android 6.1 completely intact. We haven't modified the operating system at all. And we put on top of Android an application layer, which becomes the user interface. And that user interface accesses or, 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 or plugs in to Android through that accessibility framework API. So what that allows for is a really robust voice-enabled system that when you see it and you use it for the first time, it will blow your socks off. I mean, it is the best voice recognition that you'll have ever used in your life. I, I, I stake my reputation on it. Really? And, and that, that voice recognition system is coupled with unmodified Android that allows for enterprise and industry to c continue to leverage existing sort of security applications such as like AirWatch or MobileIron and then leverage existing productivity applications that they're already deploying uh, like HPE MyRoom, uh, LibreStream uh, has, a, has a remote expert product. What's that? Uh, yeah, and so you've got a number of, uh, of these different sort of applications being deployed in enterprise on Android tablets today, all of those applications within a day or two get ported right onto our system and work without a hitch. Sure. No, I, I think that's that's really interesting. And, and it's it's something that I think, like, it's really smart that you guys aren't kind of messing with that because then you can easily upgrade to a newer version if you if you choose to or, or whatnot. But you touched on something that I want to kind of dive a little bit deeper into um, you mentioned like obviously voice recognition and I know on like a lot of kind of Android phones they have kind of two mics to kind of help with uh, kind of if you're in a noisier place but you guys have four correct that's correct yeah and so how are you using four mics to obviously if I'm out in the field or I'm kind of in a, a noisy space how are you guys kind of being able to pick up my voice using the four mics so there's, like you state, four digital microphones that are placed uh, around sort of uh, the system. So the system sits on your head. You can imagine it if you're not looking at it online, sort of like a Caesar's crown that kind of wraps around the backside of your head and then has a display arm that, that places the small micro display in front of your eyes. So the reason why I described the uh, the industrial design of it is that uh, with that sort of an arrangement, you have the opportunity to place the digital microphones uh, in, in key locations around the person's head that then the, the, the special sauce, if you will, sure. is a bunch of IP that selects the correct microphones that, that are, are, are most 
well suited for the condition that the person's in and then compares these power levels of the different voice sounds coming in or the different noises coming in and filters out the stuff that is uh, not appropriately uh, kind of measured. So if you have one microphone at certain dB of, of power, another microphone at a certain other dB, within a certain range, you know that, that that voice command came from the person wearing the device. If it's outside that range, it's coming from outside the actual person using the device. So in that way, you can dump fairly quickly and easily uh, 98% of all the background noise and everything else and have a hyper-accurate, even in very high noise conditions, up to 100 decibels. Wow. Uh, we're able to perform uh, with still, you know, you're barely able to hear yourself speak and the system hears you speak. So uh, a very, like I said, again, I, I just, you got to see it or, or sure. hear it and use it to believe it. Uh, but it's one of the best, if not the best voice system uh, that I've ever encountered in, in, in my days and, and years of, of going around looking at everything on the market. So how did you come to for a four mic decision? Well, that's uh, our, our chief technology officer, Dr. Chris Parkinson, for, for over a decade has been a global leader and specialist in voice-driven and voice-enabled systems. Gotcha. And so he's been working in this space for, for a decade, and then before that he's got 20 years in, in various other technology uh, areas. Uh, but for the last 10 years he's been focused just in and around these types of systems. And so he's the genius behind it all. I mean, he's an absolute brilliant scientist when it comes to all things related to voice waves and, and interpretation. So it was his decision uh, to elect to choose four full four digital microphones and arrange them in the way that he's done. And a lot of our IP uh, and a lot of what we do special and different from other companies on the market, uh, like Android phones with two mics that try to do this uh, rudimentary noise cancellation and stuff, all of our IP, and our, not all of our IP, but a majority of our IP and our special sauce is around being able to do what I'm describing right now. Gotcha. Okay, so there's also a camera on, on the headset. So walk me through what, what does the camera do and give people the ability to obviously probably record some stuff, um, and, and, but kind of describe what the camera does. Yeah, at a at a high level, if you think about it, it doesn't look like a tablet. It's not shaped like a tablet. You sure. wear it, but as a tablet has a camera and it has Wi-Fi and has Bluetooth and has everything inside of this system is an Android tablet. Period. So if you start to ask yourself, you know, I've had people come to me, well, can I Bluetooth connect a mouse to it? And I say, well, of course you can. I mean, you can do that with an Android tablet, right? So sure. if you have a question about it and you're like, I'm not sure what this thing is, just go back to what you know about Android tablet. You go, well, if an Android tablet has it, most likely this system has it as well. And that's why I've even named it a head-mounted tablet to, to kind of evoke that idea that, that this is no real different than a, than a standard industrial ruggedized Android tablet. So a part of that is the camera system. And the camera system, uh, the display system, the microphones, and then now the third kind of pillar or very important system uh, that we've engineered is the camera system. And the camera system starts with a very, very uh, high-quality, uh, high-end a camera uh, manufactured by by Sony, incidentally, that has uh, a uh, auto stabilized uh, autofocus 
um, a very sort of robust uh, array of focusing elements that's all across the entire uh, camera uh, frame so that you can focus on aspects up in the upper left corner or the bottom right corner, not just in the center of view. And so it, we've, we've done a lot of work on that because uh, one of our predominant killer applications that we're getting the most and the quickest uptake on because it takes so little on the back end as far as infrastructure to implement is just this video monitoring and, and help, remote help that sure. a person at a desktop 100 miles away could help a person 100 miles uh, out and walk them through a procedure. The positioning of the camera is very important. We position the camera right parallel with the eyes. So as you're looking through the camera from a remote location or you're recording, as you put it, like a bunch of video, which you can record hours and hours of video on our system because we have a micro SD slot that can contain up to 256 gigabytes wow. of bulk storage. So you can have 12 hours of video captured basically on, on, a, on our device without even swapping the SD card. And so you can, you can look through that camera. As you look through that camera, the camera is seeing exactly what the person's seeing and looking at. It's sure. positioned that way purposely. So if I'm working on a, on, a, on a sequence or a procedure, I can record what I'm doing for later playback, sort of like create a YouTube, if you will, for whatever industry vertical you might be in so that future uh, less experienced folks coming on the job could then use the micro display to watch those videos and say, hmm, I'm not sure how to do this procedure. It's my second time doing it. I kind of forgot how to actually do it. I pull up a video that, that, a, that a more experienced person may have recorded, and now I have a ready-made sort of YouTube on how to perform uh, you know, a, a switch from this manifold uh, and, and sequence of valves to this other thing or whatnot. Sure. Um, and then on the flip side, you also have this aspect when I do on that application of a remote mentor, um, you know, slash remote expert, you know, different people have different names for it. Some people call it Skype sure. <laughs> as a unique name or FaceTime, but you're basically able to see like a first person shooter video game, if you will, you think about it from that aspect. Sure. The arms of the person that's working on a system that's wearing the HMT-1 uh, clear on the other side of the country on your desktop. And now if you're an engineer that knows backwards and forwards how that system works, talking to uh, a maintainer who might be uh, more inexperienced than that engineer who designed the system, you can walk, walk that junior guy uh, at a remote location through what you want him or her to do in order to repair that system, getting it up and running again, perform a complex manufacturing assembly and all to, all the while not have to you know because today how's that done today a lot of times that's done by the engineer getting in an airplane and flying out to go meet the guy and then sit down next to him and do it uh, one airplane trip across country is going to give you the roi if you save one airplane trip across country it's going to give you the roi to buy that system uh that has in that one just one-time use. <laughs> sure. No, and that... so it's, uh, it, it's pretty powerful in that way. Sure. So I just kind of want to, just for the listener a little bit, I, I would say like it doesn't look like Google Glass, but I think just just for people that are, are trying to maybe wrap their head around, like you're basically, like, when you say Android tablet, you're basically like it's a, a headset that you can mount to, you know, like a, a hard hat or, or whatnot, but you have like a little display and you have a front-facing camera, similar to kind of how Google Glass is. So it's like a headset, but it's not like a, a big bulky thing, but it's it's made for 
for industrial kind of use. And I, I think it's it's actually really cool. And and the big difference, I think, between kind of like Google Glass and what you guys are doing is you're running full Android on the headset, correct? Yeah, and, and, it's, and it is head-mounted, so it's either mounted, as you pointed out, in a hard helmet, like an MSA hard helmet. MSA is a, a large hard helmet manufacturer that's also a partner of ours. Um, and then you, you have you have that end, and then you have uh, a series of kind of uh, comfort features that allow you just to wear it on your head, similar to the mounting structure that you might see on a HoloLens. Gotcha. The listeners are familiar to that. So it's not glasses, right? It yeah, doesn't yeah, yeah. wear on the bridge of your nose. It doesn't put any pressure on the bridge of your nose or your tops of your ears, like a lot of the other products in the space do. So Google being sure. uh, maybe the most well-known and, 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 and well-observed version, they uh, restricted themselves in a lot of ways by choosing the glasses form factor for industry. So as a result of using the nose and the ears to support the weight of the system, they're required to make sacrifices like battery life, sure. like ruggedness, like certain safety regulations and certifications. And so, uh, and that becomes, uh, you know, it, it makes the, the device just frankly a lot less suitable for most industrial and heavy duty enterprise type applications. Whereas our device weighs a little bit more, but doesn't uh, feel uncomfortable to wear because your whole head is distributing the weight as you pu- as you put it on a helmet or, or wear it just without a helmet. And so in that case, I can put a much, much larger battery. So sure. the battery is a 3,250 milliamp per hour battery uh, that'll last a full shift okay, uh, with about half of the shift being used to record video or stream video. Um, Which sucks a lot it, of battery, right? Like if you're doing that kind of stuff. A lot of battery. So, yeah. it's, it's on a... On like a, a, it's it's equivalent to what you might find on a large kind of rugged uh, tablet, handheld tablet, gotcha. uh, that that size of battery. So lasts a nice long twelve hours. Uh, on top of that, we're able to comply to a bunch of ANSI and OSHA and military standards. So gotcha. we've built the system hyper rugged. I mean, the thing can take a fall from. Uh, six to eight feet above a cement floor, smack down on the floor in any direction and survive the fall, uh, which is a battery of tests that they call the mil standard 810G uh, military standard. So complies to military standard ruggedness. It complies to uh, a whole bunch of different certifications required in the industrial space. It's being actively tested, mounted on an MSA hard helmet, for all the hard helmet safety standards, uh, the ANSI standards that are required for safety. And then on top of that, we have engineered two products at the same time, both look the same, and for a user interface will be the same experience. But the second product, which comes out about three months after the first product in mass production, is an intrinsically safe version of this device. And what that means is, is this device is certified to use around potentially explosive atmospheric conditions. Oh, interesting. And where is that found most prevalently? That's, of course, in oil and gas sure. and refineries, where you might have gasoline fumes floating around in the air. Devices and electronics that are authorized to be used in those spaces require these heavy-duty certifications, which requires an ability to engineer the device in a very unique way. 
and and folks that aren't familiar with intrinsically safe have a large learning curve in order to get familiar with it uh, as luck would have it or or as as the architecture of the company that we built would have it uh, we have folks that have decade of experience building intrinsically safe oil and gas products so not only do you get a rugged version which will be in mass production in july you have a intrinsically safe rugged version that will be in mass production in October. So uh, lots of different industry verticals we cover in one fell swoop sure. with so this approach. I, I actually I want to dive a little bit deeper into kind of the actual hardware in a few minutes. But for people that you know are still kind of uh, maybe wondering kind of the use cases in different industries, because you guys are in a bunch of industries, do you maybe kind of want to give – um, some more detailed use cases. We kind of covered them here and there, but I, I think it makes sense to kind of maybe pick a few industries and kind of give some real life scenarios outside of maybe kind of training and recording video. How else are people using the platform? Yeah, sure. That that's uh, and even those training and and recording is kind of a uh, you know a, there's a superset of of, of uh, application. But it, I, I've I've categorized or binned. Uh, the use cases into five kind of discrete uh, areas. And I think each one of these areas uh, covers just about everything we're working on, if not 100% everything we're working on. The first and the most killer application, meaning the most uptake and the most initial kind of of out-of-the-gate buys are coming in the area of remote guidance and remote expert. We've talked a lot about that, so I'm not going to go into that any further. But the, the key reason why that's so sellable out of the box is that it you know if you're working with paper manuals and you have no industrial internet initiatives going on you have no back uh, uh, cloud of, of you know a box.com or Amazon web service if you just have nothing if you're just an old-fashioned uh, factory refinery you can work with remote mentor and remote expert right now out of the box it's not going to take any sophistication of your IT networks or systems in order to implement it. Meaning, if you're the boss of a small little power plant and you got a bunch of guys that you want to be able to dial into and help them out over the course of the shifts that you may not be at work, you can do that as a small-time guy. If you're a small-time plumber, like I've got a friend that's a plumber in Chicago, uh, J&L Plumbing, uh, he can buy a series of these devices and go site to site to site where his deployed uh, plumbers are working with no IT sophistication whatsoever. So that's why that one is so important as a killer app to get us started. Now, beyond that, there's four other categories. The first category is just straight electronic document viewing. So PDFs, uh, Word documents, sure. uh, other formats, just being able to view an electronic document, which might be a procedure, it might be uh, uh, you know, a repair manual, uh, things like that, that you want to just view a black and white, word written plus drawings type document. We have a really cool way to view in that little screen uh, both small documents and words and, and very easily read those all the way up to great big documents that you use a combination of voice and head gestures to basically pan around a large document, which is a little hard to describe for sure. by you know on an auditory pro, on an audio, audio program, uh, but something when you see it, you'll see uh, it's a pretty cool idea that we came up with. The second category are, are forms, filling out forms, electronic forms, checklists, uh, inspection guides, 
um, recording video for video closeout or taking pictures for picture closeout when you do a piece of maintenance on something and the service contract requires you to submit a video closeout record that you did the maintenance. These things are all done very easily and organically. You don't even know the device is recording. You're doing your work. It's recording it. You get done. You close it out, and you send it off into the cloud. It gets tied up into some sophisticated software that, that invoices the, the team that has the attachment of the picture or the video. That's a type of a mobile form to us. Yeah, it's all awesome. forms and input type driven. Uh, the next category is uh, work instruction, and of course work instructions can take the form of just written, which I've talked about already, or augmented reality. So we have basic augmented reality work instructions that we're leveraging uh, the great work that's being done at PTC, uh, which is now the owners of Euphoria. And so we're partnered with PTC and we're actively deploying certain, uh, at least pilot applications of utilizing and leveraging augmented reality. And, and coupled right with that is this idea of IIoT, Industrial Internet of Things data, and visualizing that IIoT data. So uh, if you think about the old-fashioned way of doing business, the old control room and then plant, you've got a, gunch, a guy or two or three or four sitting in a control room with all the access to all the bells and whistles of pressure, temperature, levels of tanks, you know, how the systems are all running. And then you got a guy out in the, in the plant doing the actual work who has to call back via a radio or a walkie-talkie back to the control room and say, hey, what's pressure doing on tank uh, 65B? Okay, that's good. All right, so I'll take this valve and I'll open it up a little bit. All right, got it? Okay, got it. What's pressure doing now? It takes that old-fashioned paradigm and brings us into a new way of thinking about it. Now we can take that same control room data and push it to the smart mobile device. Sure. So the person with their little Google Glass can have a mini dashboard, just like they're having a roving control room that they're walking around with, and they're looking at a piece of equipment, and that mini dashboard turns into the pressure, temperature, level, whatever other parameters that you're monitoring on your little tiny display that you've got up next to your eye. That's really cool. So you have a portable control room, if you will, sure. and that's the final category of application. And so that takes you around the horn uh, on all five sort of use cases that we find that are broadly applicable across many, many different industries. And so although we're horizontally fairly large, uh, we're very narrow on our focus on what our solution and our, on our, our delivery proposition is. We're, we're not the all-in-one type company. Sure. Uh, we leverage our partners. So, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm curious to dive kind of a little bit deeper into the actual hardware. Like, walk me through kind of your, your first kind of early prototypes of this thing. Like, did you kind of get a bunch of off-the-shelf stuff? Did you build kind of 3D models? Like, how did you kind of come up with the first prototype of this headset? This is, uh, Kevin, a fantastic story, and, and it's a great one that I think your listeners are going to, uh, sure. a lot of your listeners are going to resonate with. Our first head-mounted computer actually dates all the way back to 1978. Really? And I'll wow. tell you why. Yeah, so I'll, I, I'll, I'll, I'll feed the... I love I'll, it, I love I'll, it. I'll, I'll tip your curiosity with that, and, and I'll tell you why. We have a, 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 a gentleman by the name of Stephen Pombo that is an unsung hero of wearable computing. He has been in wearable computing for 35 years. Wow. And has made his life work 
around the evangelizing and the development of wearable computing systems, although he's a very soft-spoken uh, man uh, that, you know, doesn't belie his true genius. You know, he's not a self-promoter, a self-marketer. So a lot of folks haven't heard about Stephen. Stephen is my vice president of industrial design and human factors. And gotcha. when he was a very young man, college age, in 1978, he worked with a number of folks on a team that worked for a guy named Joe Johnston that developed the Boba Fett helmet. Really? Okay for the Star Wars uh, uh, movie, Empire Strikes Back. That's amazing. And on the Boba Fett helmet, there is a small computer, wearable computer, called the Rangefinder. Okay. And the folks that are familiar with the, the movie will know exactly what I'm talking about. That Rangefinder was the HMT Zero. <laughs> really? Because that was the first idea that Stephen had to create a working wearable computer that you can pull down, see the display when you need it, and then crank the display out of the way on the boom arm, out of the way when you weren't using it and you wanted your vision to be com completely unobstructed, which is a big difference also between us and Google Glass. The display moves completely up out of the way uh, when not in use, and then you bring it down like an industrial dashboard and wear it right down below the line of sight. So you're glancing down at it like you would a car dashboard sure. when you're using it. So, so anyway, so that all derived from this artistic concept that Stephen had. That's amazing. And then what he did was Stephen sought out a company that actually utilized uh, micro displays for a number of military purposes and pitched them when he took his job there on this concept of building a, the world's first wearable, truly wearable, truly mobile computer. And his first patent was filed uh, in the 90s and was approved in 1996. And so from 96 until today, Stephen has now accumulated and authored about 85 to 90 patents in the space um, and has been made his life work the realization of a real-life Boba Fett rangefinder. That's, so that's amazing. That's where it all started from, and... Uh, and, and that's where it all began. So, so from there, I'll tell you a little bit about the history of sure. the evolution of the hardware, okay? Sure, love so, that. Actually, um, maybe before, how did you meet Stephen? So, so it was through Dr. Chris Parkinson, which we talked about earlier being the voice expert yeah. in this whole uh, team. So Chris Parkinson and I had met while I was the president of Daiquiri. He had come and approached me. Uh, on occasion and said, hey, instead of this Daiquiri smart helmet you guys are making, take a look at this device. So he, he came in trying to convince Daiquiri uh, to potentially hire these folks out of his company and uh, begin to build the system that he and Stephen had been working on for the better part of 10 years. And so through Chris, uh, Chris and my relationship, he then introduced me to uh, the great Stephen Pombo. Uh, which, uh, you know, became then a kind of a great, and then just uh, right now, Stephen and I are as, as close as two people can get because of just my extreme appreciation of both his artistic side of his mind and also his engineering side of his mind. It's one of those rare unicorns that you don't find very often out there sure. in the space that can be so creative and at the same time, so technical at the same, at, at, in the same moment. So, so, so Stephen and Chris, like I said, in earnest, began to build a system called the GoldenEye, which the listeners can look up. There's a lot of press about it that had started uh, back in the mid-2000s, 2005, 6, 7. And they had released their first reference design 
that they had done some work with Motorola on, on the first industrial wearable computer in 2007. Okay. And then from there, they continued to iterate on the hardware. So they never took it through a commercialization process where they're going to production, but they iterated the prototype four or five additional times over the period of 2007 to 2014. Interesting. And they, they, they evolved the operating system. The operating system started as a Windows CE device, and then sure. it uh, eventually became an Android 4 device and so on. And not until Chris uh, broke from Copen and decided to form the company Realware and then invited me in to participate as the CEO and one of the co-founders did we really take an earnest effort of commercializing the system. So we obtained a, a license and a partnership from Copen. Uh, we began to build a team that could commercialize the device back in the beginning of 2016. Sure. Um, and that's where I came across a number of folks from another company called Sonheim Technologies. And Sonheim had spent the last 12 years building up a very profitable and very well-run business that uh, commercialized rugged Android phones for guess what industry oil and gas all the same verticals that we were targeting sure so I had a VP of engineering a VP of test and acceptance and a chief product officer and oh by the way uh, one of the board one of my the people on my board of directors is the founding CEO uh, of Sonheim interesting so that group came in as my commercialization of hardware team Gotcha. So what I did is I took the old uh, Boba Fett crew that had specialized in the industrial design, human factors, and operating system, voice-driven operating system, and I merged them with a team from Sonheim that had done product after product after product for the better part of 12 years. That's it. That's crazy. Uh, that's awesome. And, and that's kind of what is the magic of why we were able to take an idea of a, of a head-mounted tablet, a head-mounted industrial Android tablet, and realize a commercialized product in just a little bit over eight or nine months. I, I mean, from the time that we started in earnest working on the commercialization of the product to where we are today, which is in our third iteration of the DVT, uh, DVT, uh, DVT product, which is uh, just before your production unit. Um, we're on our third iteration of that on this particular system, our Android 6 system, and we're delivering right now in the process, we just delivered uh, 65 uh, prototypes or beta prototypes to our partners that have been in early stage pioneer phase and so on. And we're in the process of building another 300 uh, that we have uh, mostly accumulated orders for. We have a few left, uh, about 100 or so of them still left and available for sale but those beta units are now being deployed uh, as the subsequent round. And then from there, we'll do one more set of iterations on the design and we'll move into production and produce our first PDT item, which will be uh, available for, for sell uh, 1st of July. So that's, a, that's our schedule. That's our hyper fast schedule that we've uh, been able to commercialize this product around. But really, it hasn't been completely magic. It's been architected by the people that I brought on the team, and then even more importantly, maybe the history that we've been able to leverage from our very, very close partners at Copen of about a decade of experience and trials and tribulations to get the product into such a great condition that you see today. Sure. So 
let's close the show with kind of mentioning where what what exactly is the pioneer program and how can people get involved so the so we have two programs we have uh in the early phases we called it the pioneer program which we're still uh providing a few uh left people uh with that idea where not only do you get prototype unit in a production unit you also get what they call a hardware developer kit which is basically a, a nexus phone or a Google phone that has our operating system loaded on it so that you can, uh, you know, without wearing the device, you can port your applications and work on it. So we call that our hardware developer kit or HDK. Sure. Uh, the, the total amount for the Pioneer program is $4,000 and it's available online. You can go to realware.com, R-E-A-L-W-E-A-R, not like software, like what you wear on your body. So realware.com, and you can click on that and sign up for the Pioneer program. If, if, if the Pioneer program, uh, like I said, is, is nearly sunsetted at this point, okay. and we're moving into what we're calling the Pioneer beta program, which is $2,500. And with that program, you get one of those 300 DVT 2.1s that I was talking about that we've already begun shipping and will continue to ship through the end of May. So you get one of those devices that you immediately start piloting with and start using at CE and FCC and a number of other certifications already done. So it's applicable for use uh, for, a, for sort of pilot applications and, and getting your stuff out deployed, uh, which we have a number of those that we're currently conducting. And then you get a, uh, a, a production unit, one production unit, fresh off the line in the very, very first lot or the very first batch on July 1st. So you get two units in total and you get a whole bunch of support around helping you get a pilot off the ground. So, so voice support from, from the folks on our product team and our, on our engineering team, you get uh, email and, and online uh, uh, forum and stuff like that, a whole bunch of support plus the two units, and that can get you started. If you want to just go directly into the production units, um, where I'm in the process of, of developing a supplier portal and stuff like that, uh, production units for uh, the individual or the end user will be available for order inside of the next few weeks, so in the next three or four weeks. So getting started today, uh, my recommendation would be uh, if you're if, if you're a developer or if you're an end user to maybe just get online and, and get in there and, and order yourself a beta unit is what I would recommend. Perfect, Andy. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your, your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you. And if people want to get more information about you, go to realware.com. That's R-E-A-L-W-E-A-R.com. Thanks again, Andy. All right, Kevin. Thanks a lot. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today, and I look forward to talking to you in the future. Me as well. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep them in the future.